Martin Luther in a sermon on Galatians in the year 1532 said the following. The law is God's word and command in which he commands us what we are to do and not to do and demands our obedience. The gospel does not demand our obedience for justification like the law, but bids us to simply receive the offered grace of the forgiveness of sins and eternal salvation. So basic is this doctrine, according to Luther, that every Christian should know and be able to state this difference between the law and the gospel. If this ability is lacking, one cannot tell a Christian from a heathen or a Jew of such importance is this differentiation. Theodore Beza, who was John Calvin's successor in Geneva, wrote these words. With good reason, we can say that ignorance of the distinction between law and gospel is one of the principal sources of the abuses which corrupted and still corrupt Christianity. Beloved, the fact that there is so much confusion around the gospel, or we could say so much confusion around the law and the gospel, is a result of the work of the evil one and is a result of human sinfulness and human blindness. Many human beings reject God and reject and deny God's law. That is a grave error. Others uphold the law but teach a righteousness of works under it. That is an equally grave error. Still others seek to slip the law back into the gospel. It's Jesus and our works. It's Jesus and our obedience that will finally save us in the end. Saints, that is another equally grave error. The value of the ministry of the Word is found in rightly dividing the Word of God and is found in rightly dividing law and gospel. If we don't, we blur the two and we lose both. Now, I've begun this way because in our text today, we're going to be dealing with matters of justification by faith in Christ apart from works. Gospel. And we will also be dealing with how this relates to God's law. If you have your Bibles with you, open them to Romans chapter 3 and verse 27. We'll be looking today at verses 27 through 31 of Romans 3 as we continue to make our way through this wonderful letter of the Apostle Paul. As you're turning... In your Bibles, let me make a few comments. It's been a couple of weeks, three weeks even, since we've been in the book of Romans. For my sake and yours, I will remind us of where we've been. 
Paul told us early on in the letter that in the gospel, the only righteousness that sinners could ever have before God is revealed. And that righteousness is a righteousness which God gives, and it is entirely of faith. Meaning that sinners receive this righteousness by faith. This is the only way sinners can ever be righteous before God. Because all of us, Gentile and Jew alike, stand condemned under sin. We're not righteous. We're lawbreakers. We will all be found guilty in the court of divine justice. It is true, said Paul that God will reward those who seek Him with eternal life. But the problem is that no one seeks God. It is true that God will reward those who do good with eternal life. The problem is no one does good. No one is righteous. Not even one. And so, God's law, says Paul, shuts everyone's mouth. By works of the law, no human being will be justified in God's sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin. When it comes to justification, how we would be right with God, how He would ever look at us and pronounce righteous, just, when it comes to that, The law only serves to show us the depth of our sin. But now, wrote Paul, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the Scriptures bear witness to it. That's the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. It is through faith in Christ that we are justified. Paul goes on, all have sinned, no one's kept the law, no one has attained to the glory of God, everyone, without exception, has fallen short of it. And so, anyone who is justified is justified by God's grace, completely on the basis of what Christ has done, and we receive what he has done, we receive him By faith. All of this was to show how it is that God saves sinners. God the Son took on flesh and lived in perfect righteousness as a human being. He died in the place of sinners. And His righteousness is counted to them. And so, God is both just and the justified of the one who has faith in Jesus. That is where we have been. Let's look now to the text. Romans chapter 3, beginning in verse 27. Listen as I read. This is the Word of God. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? 
Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. Amen. We thank God for his word. God's word is marvelous. It is unfathomably deep. I pray that we are encouraged today as we consider the gospel and the law. My plan for us is simple. I've got three points and a conclusion. They are varying length. I will try to warn you beforehand. Number one, point one, which is of a pretty average length, is this. Justification by faith excludes our boasting. Pretty simple. Justification by faith excludes our boasting. We're going to look at verses 27 and 28 to see that great truth. In verse 27, we see that our boasting is excluded. means it is no more, not through the law of works, but through the law of faith. Paul has already convincingly destroyed our confidence in our own works of the law. Has he not? He has. He's blown that to pieces. None of us meet the test. We've all fallen short. The law serves to condemn us, to show us our sin, and it's impossible for any of us to be justified by what we do under the law. Yet, by the inspiration of the Spirit, Paul writes more. He speaks directly to our pride directly to our tendency to boast in anything that we can do, to hope in anything that we can do. Verse 28, Christian doctrine. You see, we hold the apostolic teaching, right? Christian doctrine is this, that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. As you know, and I pray the Lord will continue to teach us more, to be justified is to be declared just. It is to be found righteous. It is to be found a law keeper. But here's the thing about the righteousness we are found to have. In order to obtain it, we don't do any work. Nor do we offer anything to God for it, we simply receive it. We are passive in it. Someone else works on our behalf. Someone else earns it on our behalf. It is not that righteousness is not worked for. It is not that righteousness is not earned. It is that another person did the work. And another person did the earning. None other than God the Son himself. Our standing has everything to do with the work and merit of him. And nothing whatsoever to do with our own work or our own merit. And since our justification is of faith apart from works... There is nothing that we can claim for ourselves. 
Because faith receives all from God. As has been said, faith comes with an empty hand and brings nothing other than a humble confession of need. It's important that we see in these verses, Paul is not simply modifying or lessening merit, our merit. He completely obliterates it. As John Calvin wrote, in these verses, Paul does not leave a particle of merit behind. And so, what is there left for us to boast in? Nothing. Paul has to be this explicit. We all know this. He has to double down and be redundantly clear. Because we know if there is any tiny little anything that we can contribute, that's what we'll look to. It's what we'll talk about. It's what we'll analyze. It's what we will assess. It's what we'll boast in. This is how we are. Hence, the witness of the Scriptures. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. All of it. Not a result of works so that no one may boast. Or these words. Because of God, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. He's everything. So that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Ours is a faith, beloved, that does not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of who? God. The apostles regularly thank God for the faith of the saints to whom they write. Because the apostles know that God is the one who gave it in the first place and will sustain it thereafter. This is why in our confession of faith it states that God counts the active obedience of Christ to the whole law and Christ's passive obedience in his death to us as our whole and only righteousness by faith This faith is not self-generated. It is the gift of God. Beloved, we have nothing to boast about. We contribute nothing to our salvation. We bring nothing to it. Of course, other than the sin that made it necessary in the first place. Having said that, I trust this is clear. Our boasting is excluded not only because we can't do anything. That's true. But our boasting is excluded also because Christ has done everything. Both of those things matter. We can't do anything. He has done everything. All of our boasting is in Jesus Christ. All of our praise goes to Jesus Christ. And in that, the Father is honored. And the Father is glorified. 
I wonder, as you sit here this morning, what things are you prone to put your confidence in other than Jesus? What things are you prone to boast in other than Jesus for you? I wonder if we took these truths to heart, how might that change the way that we interact, even with one another in this local church? These things are worthy of our contemplation and reflection. May God give us wisdom and tender hearts to do just that. Point number two. Number one, you recall... Justification by faith excludes our boasting. Number two, justification by faith is God's way of salvation. Justification by faith is God's way of salvation. We're going to look at verses 29 and 30 for this. This point will be very brief. So track with me. When I say that justification by faith is God's way of salvation... What I mean is, this is universal. It's true for every human being who will be saved. God is one, says Paul. He's God of Jews and Gentiles. He justifies the circumcised Jews by faith and the uncircumcised, the nations, through faith. This is no surprise to us at this point, I trust. Everybody was seated already, but nobody fell out of their chairs. This is not surprising to us at this point. There is no difference, right, between Jews and Gentiles when it comes to their condition as sinners. We learn that in verse 23. All have sinned, falling short of the glory of God. We learn that in verse 9. Paul says, we've already charged that everyone, Jews and Greeks, Jews and Gentiles, are under sin. And given that that's true, there's no distinction and difference between Jews and Gentiles when it comes to their condition as sinners. There would be, therefore, no distinction when it comes to receiving God's righteousness. It's not a situation where some are justified this way and others are justified this way. Now, the very scrupulous among us Real attention to detail people. Now reading this verse, verse 29, verse 30 in particular, and they see different prepositions there. That God will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. And we think, all right, is there anything to that? In short, no. I mean, Galatians 2.16 is one of many examples. These are two different prepositions. They mean the same thing. They're interchangeable. Paul does this elsewhere. Galatians 2.16 reads this way. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. I trust we're good on that. Final closing summary statement for point two. There is one way a person, any person, 
becomes a son or daughter of God in truth by faith in Jesus Christ. Point three, justification by faith upholds the law. Justification by faith, number one, excludes our boasting. Number two, is God's way of salvation. Number three, upholds the law. This point is long, and I trust worth our time. May God minister to us even now. I was with a brother recently, and some of the things that I'm about to communicate, and I I respect this man as a theologian and as a pastor in the church, not in our church, but in, in a different church, and he said, regarding some of this content that we're about to consider, something along these lines, like, brothers, this is hard won stuff, these truths about the law and the gospel. This, in one sense, was so much of the battle of the entire Reformation. So, we're going to look at verse 31. I trust that's clear. Where Paul writes, do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. Paul is writing, you know this, because you've been tracking in the letter with me, with us. Paul is writing about justification here in this section of Romans. Yes, we're good with that. Justification. He will spill ink later about sanctification. That will happen, but not here. Keep that in mind. The question is raised. What about the law? Do we overthrow it by this faith? Paul's answer, by no means, on the contrary, we uphold The law. That's a strong response from Paul. But you get the question. You understand it. A person might conclude from the doctrine of justification by faith apart from works of the law, which Paul has been pounding. They might understand and conclude that the law of God has now been made void. Now, I think there's many of us who read this verse and when Paul says, on the contrary, we uphold the law, we immediately in our minds go to something like this. Yes, certainly Paul, we are justified by faith and then we are empowered to keep the law. That's how we would often read this. My understanding you could judge my exposition, is that that is not what Paul means here. He will write on that later, on sanctification, but not here. He is saying that the law is upheld in justification by faith apart from works on account of Christ. The law is upheld because Christ himself fulfilled all of its requirements and Christ himself satisfied all of its penalties. Let me put it to you this way. Could there be any greater respect shown to the law than that when God determined to save a people from its curse, that it was God the Son Himself who endured its curse 
and fulfilled all of its demands. I'm going to ask that again. Is there a way to show greater respect to God's law than that when God determined to save a people from the curse of that law, God the Son himself was the one who endured its curse and fulfilled all of its requirements? I will wait for an answer. Because there isn't one. God the Son from all eternity, light from light, very God of very God, took on flesh, became a man, and was born under the law in order to fulfill all of its demands and satisfy all of its penalty. Galatians 4, 4 and 5. Overthrow the law? Huh? This is a glorious establishment of the law. On the law and the gospel, track with me. The law and the gospel, while distinct, are not contradictory. Oftentimes you hear them talked about like that. There's a lot of nonsense spewed out there about the law and the gospel. The Old Testament's law, the New Testament's gospel. False. There's there's Gospel and law in the Old Testament, there's gospel and law in the New Testament. Sometimes you hear this like, well, the law is bad and the gospel's good. Wrong. False. There's just a lot of bad thinking about this in the church. The law and the gospel, while distinct, are not in any way contradictory. God is one. He is not conflicted. He's not schizophrenic. The law and the gospel complement, with an E, complement one another in God's economy of salvation. It's not as though the law is strict and the gospel is lax. God requires perfect obedience of any human being that will ever be justified in his sight. So in that sense, the law and the gospel, when it comes to justification when it comes to being reconciled with God. The law and the gospel don't have two different standards for those who would dwell with God. There's one standard. Here is the distinction. If you didn't get anything else today, but you got this, it would be worth gathering. The law demands perfect obedience of us. The gospel announces that Christ has accomplished perfect obedience for us. I'm going to repeat that. The law demands perfect obedience of us. The gospel announces that Christ has accomplished perfect obedience for us. We must understand the proper function of the law after the fall of mankind. Again, we're talking about the law right now when it comes to justification. I want to be very clear. The law, brothers and sisters, was not given to justify. I'm talking the law God gave through Moses was not given to justify. It was given, when it comes to justification, to condemn, to show us how corrupt we are. To show us how far we have missed the mark. 
to show us the depth of our ruin and therefore to show us the hell that is literally opened wide to swallow us all. It was given, the law was, to bring us to the end of ourselves for righteousness. The only appropriate response to the just condemnation of the law. I trust this is plain. I may say it elsewhere. I'll say it now. There is not anything wrong with the law. Amen, somebody. The law is holy and righteous and just and good like the God who gave it. The problem is us, right? The only appropriate response to the just condemnation of the law is to run to Christ in faith. It is to take refuge in Jesus. That's the only remedy. Rock of ages cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee. In light of this, dear ones, may we never go back to the law for our righteousness at any level, to any degree. It's evidence of our blindness. It's evidence of misunderstanding. That we would seek any part of our salvation in the thing that condemns us. If we agree with God in the standard of his law, which we do, we do. We agree with God and the standard of his law. All we do then by going to the law for any piece of our righteousness before God is just to heap law upon law upon law on our conscience. No wonder so many of us lack assurance. No wonder we struggle to see that the law is good. We still carry it around like a heavy yoke to bear. Deep down, we're afraid that the law and the God who gave the law will come back around to condemn us in the end. No wonder we read Jesus' words and we're kind of conflicted. Because on the one hand, they comfort our souls, and on the other hand, it's just not been our experience. When he says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. For many, that's not been their experience. Part of our problem, I'll probably say this repeatedly, part of our problem is that we have not rightly understood the law and the gospel. Often, for many, it seems as though Jesus is gentler and more compassionate toward unbelievers than he is to the saints who have trusted him. In everything that I'm about to say, I'm trying to paint a picture to show you the folly of mixing the law and the gospel. I don't mean to be unnecessarily punchy. But for many, it seems as though Jesus is the master of the bait and switch. 
gentle and gracious on the front end, and then threatening and exacting and stern once you're in him. It's as though he said, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you more to do. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will put you on probation. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm severe and exacting in heart. And you will find anxiety for your souls. For my yoke is hard and my burden is heavy. Saints, if bruised reeds are being broken, it ain't Jesus. If smoldering wicks are being put out, it ain't Jesus. There are times, Christian, if we're all honest, that we have some trepidation about going to Jesus in our time of need, is there not? Are there times, Christian, when you're afraid to go to him when you've sinned, when you've sinned? Are there times when you question whether he could continue with his eyes open to advocate for you? Are there times when you question whether he again with his eyes open seeing you could still love you? Given how much you struggle with sin. A significant piece of our problem is that we have not rightly understood the law and the gospel when it comes to our standing before God. When it comes to our acceptance. All right, so for our part, when I say our, I mean the elders in the congregation of Covenant Baptist Church. For our part, what do we do? First, we preach the thunder of the law. Track with me. We preach it, the congregation, you demand it. Preach the thunder of the law. You must love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. You must love your neighbor as yourself. You must fulfill and obey every dot, every iota of the law. You have heard it said, you shall not murder. But if you have anger in your heart towards your brother, you are liable to the fires of hell. You have heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you, if you have lusted after someone, you are liable in the judgment. If you have broken any commandment in the law, you are guilty of breaking them all. If you would be justified by the law, you better keep the whole thing. You must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Personally, perpetually, at a spiritual level. This is why Charles Spurgeon said something to this effect. This is a paraphrase. If any man thinks that he can ascend to God by scaling the side of Sinai, 
That is evidence that he has not seen that shaking mountain at all. You remember Sinai when God gave the law. The mountains shaking, fire and smoke, and the Lord saying, you best not even touch this mountain or you'll die. We preach the thunder of the law. We also, for our part, we preach the judgment seat. This is unpopular. It has always been unpopular to preach of hell and to preach of judgment on the principles of righteousness. We preach this. Congregation, you demand this. The one who is the judge has eyes like a flame of fire. He is so holy that the brightness of his presence is like gleaming metal. It's like fire enclosed all around. It's like he's so glorious. It's like the rainbow that appears in the sky on a day of rain. He is the one from whom angels hide their faces. He is the one of whom angels cry out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. He is the one before whom the mountains melt. And the earth heaves and the valleys split in two. He is the one who is so pure that even the moon isn't bright and the stars are not pure in his eyes. How much less man who is corrupt. It is this one who sits enthroned to judge the deeds of men and women. We preach these things. And we preach them, hear me, so that those outside of Christ might see their corruption and misery and condemnation and might be driven to Christ to cast themselves wholly upon Jesus. And we preach these things so that those who have been justified might anew be driven to Christ, might be reminded anew He is all I've got. When I say he's my life, I mean it. So that we might be reminded, so that we might see anew our need for Christ's imputed righteousness. And then our consequent need, hear me, of thankful godliness, of thankful obedience and piety. And we preach the gospel Amen. We preach Christ. The news. Not the potential. The news. It's done. That lawbreakers, wretched offenders, miserable sinners are redeemed from all of our sin and all of our misery through the accomplishments of a true and sinless man who also, by the way, is the true God and the mediator of salvation to everyone who believes in him. Jesus has made satisfaction for our sins. And he has taken them away. And he will not give them back. He has set us free from sin, from the curse of the law. He set us free from the wrath of God, from the tyranny of death, from the torment of hell. Jesus is our righteousness, our whole righteousness, our only righteousness. Jesus is our life, our eternal life. He is all of this 
for everyone who believes on his name. In the gospel, Jesus says to terrified sinners. Terrified, why? The law, the curse of the law, the torment of hell, the threat of death, fear of judgment. Jesus says to terrified sinners, come to me and have no fear of any wrath. If you believe in me, I am your refuge. You are hidden in me so that no wrath can ever, will ever touch you. May we have faith to believe that. In the gospel, Jesus says to guilty sinners, guilty sinners, come to me and have no fear of condemnation. If you believe in me, I am your representative. You are righteous in me so that no condemnation can ever or will ever touch you. And so we can pray. You, wanna, you want a sinner's prayer? Here's one. Lord Jesus, I'm a wretch. I am weak. I love you. And I know you love me. Help my unbelief and give me grace that I might live unto you. The gospel makes it possible to pray like that. A few final thoughts here on the law and the gospel before we wrap this up with a conclusion. This is informative for us. Simple things, simple categories in our minds are helpful. Law is command. It is something that God requires. Gospel is something God has done. There are no demands. There are no commands in the gospel. The gospel is something that God himself does. It is historical. It is news. It is outside of us. It is something that Jesus himself did. If you ever have anybody coming to you and telling you that we need to live the gospel, run away. There is one person who lived the gospel. His name is Jesus. We might live in it. We might live under it. We might live in light of it. There are all kinds of implications of the gospel. Amen. Praise God. There is one person who lived it. And he told us not to live it but to believe it and to preach it. The law says, do this and live. The gospel says, Christ has done it. Now live in him. There are uses of the law. We will get more into this later on in the letter because Paul's going to be writing in these ways. There are uses of the law, but just a few brief comments here. There is the first and greatest use of the law, which is how we've been talking basically exclusively today, right? Because that's how Paul is writing of justification and the law in our text. This first and great use of the law is to show us our sin and drive us to Christ. It's a mirror. We assess ourselves in light of it. We see how far short we fall. We're taken and driven to the end of ourselves for righteousness, and we're driven to Christ. First use. Second use is a civil use. 
It restrains human corruption, believers and unbelievers. God reveals what's good and bad and right and wrong. He promises reward for obedience, threatens punishment for disobedience, curbs our corruption. Third use of the law is for the Christian to guide our lives. Hear this. Here's the kicker, though. The law guides our lives, but we're not dealing, we're not trading in the capital of fear and dread and condemnation. We receive the law from the hand of Christ himself, from our good and loving Heavenly Father. God is holy, righteous, and just. He never changes, neither does his law, because it is a reflection of his character. And hear this, and having been accepted by God through Christ, having been accepted, we, with Paul, say we delight in God's law in our inner man. Amen. We delight in it because it's good. We pursue obedience out of gratitude. We pursue obedience out of love. We pursue obedience, hear this, out of freedom. We're going to hear that from Romans 6. Can't wait. Hope you can't either. We, I want an amen here. If I don't get one, I'm not going to be pleased. We are people who have regard for the law. Amen. We have a place for the law. We better. Why do we? Why do we have regard for the law? Why do we have a place for the law? Why do we love it? It's because we are Christ's. And he reigns in our hearts. That's why. That was point three. We'll end our time with a brief conclusion. Jesus is our whole and only righteousness before God. We receive this righteousness of Christ by faith. While Christ was active in achieving and earning righteousness, we're not. We are completely passive in receiving. These truths exclude our boasting, other than to boast in Christ. And you realize, these truths are also the only thing that could ever comfort our souls. You realize. The world, you see, the world does not know this kind of righteousness. It's not the capital that the world trades with. This kind of righteousness, a passive righteousness that we simply receive from the grace of another. The world thirsts like crazy for this kind of righteousness, this kind of mercy, this kind of grace, and it's nowhere to be found. But then again, if we're honest, Christians, we in the church, we struggle to grasp and understand it sometimes too. We have a hard time living in the freedom and the comfort of it, at least sometimes. I've said this before, we'll say it again. If we were able, by the grace of God, to live in the freedom and the comfort of this righteousness, beloved, I promise you, we would not sin more. We would not sin more. The age-old objection that you, gotta, that you have to have salvific skin in the game in order to be motivated to obey is a lie from hell. If Christianity were a natural religion, you might be onto something. 
If this was something that we did in our own strength, you might be on to something. But as it stands, Christianity is supernatural. As it stands, it is union with Christ for justification, sanctification, and eternal life. But we have a hard time living in the freedom and the comfort of this righteousness that we receive. This is especially true when we're fighting temptation. This is especially true when we're battling our own corruption. This is especially true when we're convicted of sin. When we know we've been wrong. We have blown it. This is true when our consciences accuse us. This is true when death is near. In those times, we often can't see anything but ourselves and the law. We see our righteousness, our works, our merit, or lack thereof. To look to ourselves is so ingrained in us. It's as natural as breathing. Beloved, this is why we never stop preaching the gospel. This is why we preach it every time we gather. Because everything in our lives preaches a different word. We never stop preaching the righteousness of Christ that we receive by faith. We never stop reminding one another of this in our daily living. When it comes to our own righteousness that we can achieve, the law would still accuse us. Death would still reign over us. It would still have its sting. And it would one day swallow us. But as it stands, we have another righteousness and another life. This righteousness and this life is hidden with Christ on high. And Jesus has no sin. And he will never die because he is the resurrection and the life. And so because of him, though our bodies one day will lie in the grave, they will also one day rise, finally free from the slavery of sin. We will be incorruptible, imperishable. We will see Jesus as he is. We will be with him. We'll be like him. We'll eat and drink with him. We will behold his glory that the Father gave him before the foundation of the world because the Father loved him. And now we pray to him as we prepare to come to his table.